Alright guys, picture this. You're scrolling through eBay hmm, 10 years from now, maybe looking for some artwork to put up in your new apartment. So you come across a painting you like, but it looks familiar, really familiar. And so you look a little closer and you realize that you've seen this painting before in a museum in Ukraine. And you think to yourself, wait, what's it doing on eBay? Hi guys, it's Agata here. We're starting a little bit different today, but I'm as always joined by my co-host Kat and Nastya. Hi guys. Today, we've got an episode on a topic that really fascinates the three of us. Are we talking about art theft? Yep, we are. Because unfortunately, the scenario I just described is not entirely unlikely. Um, art theft is actually an enormous issue, and it's something that has been extremely unreported during the war. Yeah, I've seen a lot of articles in uh, Ukrainian and Western media, but I'm not sure people still understand the scale of what it is. And to be honest, neither do I. Right. It's not a secret that uh, Russia has been stealing art during the war. Along with other invaluable artifacts like our washing machines. <laughs> right. And actually not only washing machines. But interestingly enough, there is an expert who is saying that um, art theft you know, is actually a strategic Russian move and that the Russian looting of Ukrainian museums is actually a very carefully organized operation. And so... What he's arguing is that um, Russia is targeting specific paintings and ornaments and actually has special teams dedicated to smuggling of valuable artifacts out of Ukraine. To anyone that knows anything about Ukrainian history and Russian colonialism, this doesn't come as a surprise at all. I mean, wasn't there an official slogan during the Russian Civil War that was literally steal what's already been stolen? Yeah, there was mass looting by the Bolsheviks. Um, I think it was estimated that they sold like 120 billion U.S. dollars worth of stolen goods to the West. But that's only, you know, what what they sold. So that's only what we know about. Russian commanders and Red Army soldiers also pocketed countless of priceless items. And the Soviets had some kind of looting policy during the World War II as well, right? Yeah, the Soviets created a, a central trophy department, which was basically used for gathering of war trophies. And they stole all kinds of art objects. They also stole historical relics, documents, antiques, and so forth uh, from the German museums. Right. There was a really famous case of this in World War II. They had stolen this cache full of gold artifacts from ancient Troy called Priam's Treasure. And it had all kinds of stuff in it gold cups, woven gold headpieces, jewelry, so on. It used to be held in the Royal Museums of Berlin. Now, most of the artifacts are in the Pushkin Museum. Didn't they also take those two Gutenberg Bibles from German museums? I mean, those are obviously incredibly rare. It's a huge deal. It's actually caused quite some tension between uh, Germany and Russia. There's uh, dozens of German cultural artifacts displayed all over Russia that were stolen in World War II. And the craziest part is, is how shameless they are. Like, they have them up, exhibited, and they aren't shy about showing off their stolen work. We're not ashamed, as they would say. Yeah, um, they would. And under the 1954 hate convention for the protection of cultural property in the event of armed conflict, 
a country's cultural property includes works of art. So, you know, there's a question of legality and whether these works, you know, should be returned to Germany. Yeah, well, of course, we all know how much the Russians respect and adhere to international law. Right. But it's scary um, because there's already been thousands and thousands of invaluable Ukrainian artworks stolen by Russia during this war. And as we see with stolen art in World War II, I mean, who knows if and, you know, when, if we'll ever get this back. Honestly, that just, it makes me so incredibly angry. I can't describe it. It's despicable. And the worst part is that we don't even know after victory if we'll ever be able to get those artifacts back. And that's thousands of little pieces of our culture that contain thousands of stories and memories of Ukraine and our history and just erased forever. I, I can't even think about it, honestly. And that's exactly why they do it, though. Uh, culture, art, all those things are what nations are built on. And this is all part of their attempt to completely erase Ukrainian existence. That's, you know, what they've been doing in the occupied territories. In Militopol in mid-March, it was reported that a man in a white lab coat walked into a museum with armed Russian soldiers. And they uh, went and they basically stole a huge collection of Scythian gold, which dates back to the 4th century BC. And I think that the staff um, of the museum estimated that they stole 2,000 pieces, which are, you know, worth millions. Uh, I mean, then there's the Mariupol City Council, um, which also reported Russian forces systematically um, plundering three local museums and transporting their collections to Russian-controlled Donetsk. Again, they stole thousands of pieces and, and Kherson... Well, uh, Kherson is considered one of the, the best archaeological uh, repositories in Ukraine. And it has an insane collection, actually insane collections of ancient Greek relics and a bunch of other cool stuff. Furniture, porcelain, and Scythian gold and jewelry. But um, people don't really know uh, the status of the artifacts in Kherson, um, you know, though we can only infer what's happening. Actually, I heard the situation in Hirson was kind of interesting. Apparently, there's a Russian gang that's been stalking private collections and such and searching for objects to steal. Do we actually know if they're Russian? I, I thought witnesses said they were dressed in like Western-made camo and stuff. Yeah, it's weird, but they carry Russian guns. And of course, I mean, I assume they're Russian. That makes sense. And they work alongside Russian collaborators in the occupied areas who helped them track down the valuable objects. Yeah, I saw that too. Um, but I we can't confirm because Kherson is under Russian control and we obviously don't have a lot of information coming out of it um, that can be kind of analyzed and looked at. So we'll just have to wait and see, unfortunately. Okay, well, do we know anything about where this art might be going beyond just to the occupied territories? So... There's a few different theories and a few different ways this is actually playing out. So as we know, there's been a lot of bazaars of looted items opening up in Belarus, for example. And we know that there's also, in general, a lot of stolen goods moving through Belarus and beyond into Russia. And although we don't have confirmation that this includes stolen cultural heritage, that's what we've been reading. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Also, um, there's this other thing I've been reading, which is actually even more interesting. 
Do you guys know what free ports are? The warehouses where merchandise is stored that's not subject to import tax and duties. Yeah. And basically there are these kinds of free ports all around the world. It's uh, basically a place where you can not only um, store like your items without paying import tax and duties, but also sanctioned people hypothetically can use these ports to hide their assets. Is this some kind of a Swiss bank situation? Yeah, exactly. And Switzerland houses um, kind of uh, kind of a few of them. So they actually have seven free ports and secrecy and confidentiality is the key feature of these ports. So, you know, perfect for hiding goods. The Swiss authorities have been asked actually about whether these warehouses are, you know, being used by sanctioned Russians, but they actually haven't given us a clear answer. And the Geneva Freeport actually is a port that kind of specializes in storing valuable artifacts because there's a lot of auction houses and art uh, dealers in its vicinity. So basically, an art seller potentially could store the art in a free port until the deal with the buyer is finalized. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And because it's all confidential, we can't really know what's going on. Yep. Uh, anyone can rent a space in the free port, and it's something that has been abused in the past by traffickers or those that are in the field of art smuggling. And there has been tightening of restrictions after 2016, when there was the string of stolen art scandals. But there's still loopholes and you know, the people that run and like monitor these ports, they obviously don't have the capacity to monitor everything that comes in and out. And I mean, although this is all interesting, maybe let's get a little bit of an expert perspective on this topic. So Nasty and I interviewed two experts that work in the field of cultural heritage and specifically looting during conflict. So Nasty, do you want to play uh, your interview first? Yes, let's do it. Thank you so much for finding the time. So, okay, so the man I spoke with is Konstantin Akinsha. He's an art historian who focuses on art expropriation, particularly during the period of the Second World War. Since the war began, he's been documenting the destruction of cultural heritage in Ukraine. We know that Russians aren't particularly picky with what they steal in Ukraine. We've seen them steal anything from washing machines to Playstations to female jewelry. But when it comes to art and artifacts, you wrote that there is strong evidence that that kind of looting is actually quite well organized and targeted and purposeful. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Of course, we have different cases. Uh, we have cases when uh, the first cases of looting on museum collections were just uh, examples of the random looting. It was the looting of uh, Popovy State, which was done by soldiers, and um, he had basically, uh, let's say, highly ironic elements, because they ran into the museum and uh, um, carried out everything which was not bolted to the floor. It's a beautiful castle made out of red brick in the village of Vasilyevka, near Zaporizhia in southeastern Ukraine. It's close to Militopol, Mariupol, and that whole stretch of land that Russia currently occupies in the south. It was built in the late 19th century, but unfortunately, all the architects behind it remain unknown. But what we do know is that it took 20 years to build that castle, parts of which were, thankfully, properly preserved over the years and served as a museum, after all. 
Everything changed, of course, on February 24th. Well, a bit later, actually, in early March, when Russians shelled the area and the castle was damaged. A week after that, Russian soldiers looted the museum, taking literally everything they could, as Konstantin said. Russians shattered all windows, broke all doors, and actually one of the things they took was this marble toilet that was first actually stolen from the castle by the Bolsheviks, according to local authorities. It was later returned, but now it was taken again by the Russian military. History really does repeat itself, doesn't it? Anyway, the other kind of looting that Konstantin talked about was the highly organized one. So we saw examples of very organized looting in uh, occupied cities of uh, Mariupol and Melitopol. In Mariupol, Russians moved out of the city. Remains of the collection of Queen G Museum, uh, including a very important painting of Queen G, the red sunset over the Dnieper, uh, and two other paintings of the painter plus uh, Ivazovsky painting. We don't have full information what what was removed and what was destroyed, but they were very methodical. So the Queen G Museum, it is named after our hip. Quinji, a Ukrainian painter of Greek origins who was born in Mariupol, where there is a large Greek diaspora, in 1841. The museum's collection housed over 2,000 items, all of which were looted by the Russians in the spring. But before they did that, they also shelled the area and damaged the building of the museum itself. There is some controversy as to whether Quinji's original works, some of which were kept in the museum, were actually stolen. So before the war, the museum had three of his works. According to the head of Ukrainian National Union of Artists, Konstantin Chernyavsky, there were no Quinji originals in the museum at the time of the shelling, and so, presumably, when the looters came later too. But according to Petro Andrushenko, who is an advisor to the mayor of Mariupol, the story is much more complicated. He said that there is a suspicion that the director of the Mariupol Local History Museum, this woman named Natalia Kapusnikova, knew where the originals were, she knew where they were hidden, collaborated with the Russians, and handed them the works. And anyway, it's clear that museum collections in Mariupol weren't safe, and it will be really difficult to determine the fate of many of these precious pieces. They did not limit themselves to Quinji Museum. They removed parts of, parts of collection of the uh, regional historical museum, and they even picked up collection of the uh, I cannot say very valuable, but Soviet uh, period medals produced by uh, local uh, medalier, medal artist. Uh, as we know, all of this was moved to Donetsk. Uh, plus to this, according to information which is available, they were held by local collaborators. And the director of the um, Regional History Museum proved to be pro-Russian and Russian collaborator. So in this case, we have fully organized removal efforts. The same we saw in Militopol, and we uh, know now the story of this uh, Skissian Gold Collection, which was in the Regional um, History Museum, which uh, curators of the museum tried to hide but again, it was found and it was removed. And we have no idea where it was removed. And here we come into a very unpleasant part of the story. 
why these removals were possible, because these collections were not evacuated on time. Given that what Russians are doing is obviously a breach of, you know, international law, I guess there is a case to be made by Ukraine in international courts against this and for, you know, when we win the war, for the return of all of these artifacts. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, it's a, a breach of international law. It's a breach of the Hague Convention. It's a, a breach of the second protocol of the Hague Convention, which was adopted by UNESCO. Uh, a breach of all rules. But uh, how easy will be to return these things is another issue. Uh, because uh, Russia is notoriously bad with restitution. Uh, I'm talking about international claims, which connected to the property removed during the Second World War. Leave aside German property or property of German museums, uh, even property of the victims of Holocaust basically were not returned. Um, during all these years since the fall of the Soviet Union, these claims were ongoing, uh, never led anywhere. So I will keep my fingers crossed, um, and I'm not very optimistic that this stuff will come back very soon. So, so far, I think that Ukraine better will take seriously all the evacuation protocols and try to deal with, as minimum, with highlights of museum collections, which are in endangered parts of the country, which could be overrun by Russians. Uh, a bit earlier than Russian soldiers will appear in the museum. So remember the looting of private collections in Kherson that Agata mentioned earlier in the episode? Konstantin mentioned it too. You know that uh, Kherson is still under Russian occupation. Uh, we don't have uh, detailed information from the city. What we saw is um, uh, provoking a lot of pessimism because it was a report of Ukrainian military intelligence that from what here, museum collections of Kherson are on the move, that Russians are moving them to Crimea. And uh, even more scary story which came out of Kherson was that some strange group of Russians, which are in... Uh, um, dressed in uh, Western-issued camouflage, uh, using, at the same time, Russian arms, Russian-issued arms, using um, uh, Toyota Land Cruiser cars in its group, which is going door-to-door and confiscating from private collectors uh, all valuable uh, historical or uh, all objects of historical or artistic value and then moving them to Crimea. Again, it's a wartime. We cannot trust any information before it's proved. And of course, you know, it's a smog of war. Uh, all news are possible. We saw it in uh, uh, Mariupol when uh, conflicted, uh, conflicted news about the state of the Quinji Museum was were coming. But it's kind, kind of scary. And we don't know what is this. Is it private initiative, which is very possible? Uh, keeping in mind the behavior of the Russian army on Ukrainian territory, or it's uh, some organized group uh, working for uh, some Russian state boards. Because again, in this case, it was reported anyway, reported by intelligence, that um, uh, this group is um, helped by local collaborators who are providing them with addresses, people who are obviously 
let's say, quite informed about these uh, local art collectors, local art dealers. Uh, and uh, in this case, this is again reminding the Second World War. It's reminding um, uh, of uh, behavior of the Nazis on occupied European territories. And uh, so it's quite scary. So if they're going literally door to door, that sure sounds quite organized because you have to identify where those people are, what the collections are, you have to know the addresses, etc. Are they are they doing this for what? For profit? Are they just going to go and sell it? Are they just going to put it to Russian museums? What What are the motives? With this group, I'm, I'm afraid that motives uh, uh, are clear. It's profit because, again, uh, I can uh, operate on the that, uh, by that information which is available. Uh, they are using the same local collaborators as appraisers because these people probably can operate guns but cannot estimate the value of the object. Uh, so these collaborators are telling them is it valuable or not. So it doesn't look like uh, operation for the sake of museum uh, pieces or for placing them into the museum collections. Yeah, it's, it's a very good question because, you know, uh, we are coming back to the uh, fate of the Crimean museums. We don't know what was removed from Crimean museums to Russia, but some removals took place. Uh, and of course, now I'm sure that they will think about moving them out of Donetsk museums because um, Donetsk uh, is under artillery barrage and it's not safe. So in the end, I think that all this stuff will be moved to the museums on Russian territory, uh, which is my guess. I have no proofs and I don't know what is their plan. Uh, but uh, we came again back to the Second World War uh, when um, uh, occupying army um, uh, felt free to remove museum collections. It's a violation of all existing international agreements. So all in all, we have little answers right now, but certainly a lot of reasons to worry about the future. Cultural heritage is the key part of our national identity, so this looting is truly extremely damaging, but not only to the Ukrainian art scene, but also our security. Well, now let's see what a different expert told Agata about the exact same thing. So this is Dr. Samuel Hardy. Uh, he is a cultural property criminologist who basically researches looting and trafficking of arts and antiques from Ukraine, Turkey, and other zones of conflict and crisis. So since the start of the war, Samuel has been looking at online organization of looting and trafficking of Ukrainian art and artifacts. So basically everything about how people are doing it, who they're doing it with, and how um, they're selling what they steal. So, so far in this episode, we've mainly spoken about large-scale crimes or as you would call them, you know, thefts of museum inventories or organized crimes. But this actually isn't the only type of looting that we are seeing here. And Samuel has actually been studying online forums, and he told me that there's actually been a large amount of unorganized crimes that's also being carried out on an individual level. Some people are exploiting the chaos and the, the lack of law enforcement. 
some people are serving in the armed forces um, on both sides, and and they are um, they are using the position that they're in and the lack of control to to do these things. I think it was on TikTok. There is like there's a run of videos of of a soldier with a metal detector in the in the trench where where he's serving and i was talking to to an archaeologist and he thinks that the the guy had found a grave um when they when they dug out the trench and this is actually not something new uh looting has been a problem in the occupied regions since 2014 and actually a few years ago for example looters came from russia and arranged a whole operation involving like a bunch of people in the occupied territories to carry out theft there. And this even involved the border guards. So hearing all of this, you are probably wondering, like me, where are all of these goods going? We've heard from the last interview that um, the exceptionally beautiful symbolic objects that are stolen with intent will probably be expropriated and taken to Russia for display in a public museum as part of a broader propaganda campaign. But what about the rest? There's been investigations by journalists where they've talked about uh, at least artworks, if not antiquities, being in those shipments of, of stolen goods that were uh, sent to Belarus and then posted from Belarus back to Russia. Right. Uh, postage is a very common method of trafficking looted artifacts, not only back to Russia, but also to their intended final destination um, abroad to uh, dealers and to collectors. It'll, it, it'll take longer for the objects to travel and the profit margin will be lower because they'll have to be sent through supposedly neutral countries. Uh, any of the ones that aren't observing sanctions. Um, so, you know, the, in that sense, the market won't work as well as normal, but it is going to continue to work. They'll still be able to use VPNs to participate and to transfer money. And fundamentally, the people at the other end on the market, enough of them do not care what's happening, what they're buying, who they're buying it from where the money's going, what people are doing with the money they're getting. The, the international market fundamentally does not care. Um, so, so if people can find a way to sell things to them, they will find a way to buy it. So is there a solution? I mean, what can we do about this? Obviously, the first problem is that you simply can't do anything at all in the occupied territories. And you can't do anything at all about the market in Russia or allied countries because they don't care about the rule of law. If this stuff goes to Russia, you would only get it back if Russia actually collapses. It, like if, if there is some kind of revolution in Russia and it becomes a democratic state uh, and it wants to not, not make up for the horrendous crimes that it's committed, but at least undo the smallest, easiest uh, consequences of its crimes. You know, the, the biggest markets, thankfully, uh, are not Russia. The biggest markets are markets that make a show of caring about the rule of law, like in, in Western Europe and North America. So 
if you can if you can make good records of things in public collections uh, then if you know that they've been stolen you can share those records with uh, international law enforcement agencies and they will be able to keep an eye out if these objects show up in their markets and you'll be able to get them back you might even be able to to trace who is involved in in the dealings but from what i understand samuel um this is often very difficult to do in reality. Museums have hundreds of thousands of objects. And even in well-funded museums, not all items are recorded to the standard that is necessary for them to be tracked. But even if Ukraine does start documenting, my other concern is, will the, will the West help us recover these stolen goods? But we saw with Syria, you know, loads of stuff from Syria is on the open market in Europe and North America. And except for a few countries where they care and invest in policing, very little has been returned. Uh, very little has been, and, and even fewer of the people who are involved have been prosecuted. And I do wonder also if sometimes, you know, people like this are even involved. I mean, just last month, I was reading this press release from this huge um, international cultural heritage fund called Alif, which works with um, governments. And they basically wrote that they're sending their scientific committee chair, Jean-Luc Martinez, uh, who is also the former director of the Louvre in Paris, on leave after they found him uh, being implicated in this huge international investigation of $56 million in sales of allegedly looted antiques to the Louvre in Abu Dhabi and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is just, it's crazy to think that, um, you know, this is happening on such a scale. And this market of art theft um, is what criminals have already been using for decades to like, you know, fund terrorism and to destroy nations. And we're kind of looking at it and maybe we can even look at it as like one of those big collateral damages of the war, you know, like sexual assault or destruction of our cultural heritage, you know, like our buildings. Because it's not really what you think about. Um, well, what comes first when you think about war? But it is one of the many ways and one of the many important ways that a country gets destroyed and and there probably isn't a way back which that's the scariest part and that's also you know why we need to stop this war why we need to get all the weapons and the sanctions because while lawmakers in the west might not um think about this daily it's happening and it's happening on a large scale so the sooner we end this war the safer our artwork will be if we don't stop it now ukraine will indeed have a very long and difficult battle to restore its stolen art and heritage. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.